living for those rules. And maybe you can see that even if you stop and take a look, and this maybe not super theological, but even look at how, how the story and the arc of the story of the Bible happens, right? In the beginning, it was God and Adam and Eve. And the three of them sort of were told they walked in the garden. There's this understanding between them that, that Adam and Eve were to serve God and do these things. It was kind of a, a verbal understanding. And then as time goes on in the story, we find where God now has to give, uh, give them a leader, the people, his people, Israel, give them a leader, and that's Moses. And so he, he sort of um, charges Moses with bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. And so God is speaking to Moses, giving him some verbal expectations he has on the people. And then as they come out of Egypt, and they're going through the desert. Next thing you know, God is now saying, no, we need to, you need to have some written rules. And so God writes the Ten Commandments on the tablets for Moses to then give and to lead the people in the desert. And even then, as the story goes on, we find the religious leaders in Israel, they want to hold to these rules. These rules are very important. These laws are very important. And so what do they do? Well, they start making laws around the laws so that we don't want to break the actual law of God. We're going to put laws around it so that we don't even get close to breaking those, those laws. And all, about, all of a sudden becomes all about these rules. And as Jesus comes on the scene, he comes and he's teaching these people, teaching the Jews of the day. And all of his teaching seems to counter all the man-made rules. He's come and he's trying to help us understand that no matter how good we live by not breaking man's rules, we'll never be good enough to earn salvation. And so in all of Jesus' teaching, he's often teaching about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And, and he says to us at some point in, in the New Testament, like, the kingdom of God is, is near. And then he tells us the kingdom of God is here. And yet as we look around us, we can say, well, it doesn't look like the kingdom of God. When it comes to his teaching, he was very countercultural. I mean, for instance, if I was to ask you this morning, you know, and I don't put your hand up for this, but, you know, who wants to be rich? Who wants to be well-fed? I said, don't do that. <laughs> who wants to be well-fed? You know, who, who wants to be joyful and happy? You know, who wants to be liked by others? I mean, the reality is I think all of us kind of want all those things, do we not? Like, it would be kind of unusual for us to come out of college, go to university and be like, I'm an adult now. I don't want those things. I don't want money. I don't want food. I don't want to be happy. I don't want to be liked by anybody. And yet, as we look at our passage for today, Jesus is kind of teaching that. That, that, that. that maybe sound like it's the opposite of those things that we're looking for. I mean, the reality is there's nothing inherently wrong with those characteristics. That's where, but that's where the tension comes in our, in our message, our narration today. Jesus is going to teach his, his disciples about this. And when Jesus, I think about Jesus' teaching, it reminds me of my, my good friend Cam. Um, one, one day, uh, I don't know, probably seven years ago, a bunch of us guys up north, we went on a, on a four-wheeler trip, a four-wheeler four day. So we all got on these ATVs and took the nice smooth rail trail, which is like just gravel, so it was really nice just to drive on. And it was a wonderful day, and we had, went, had lunch in Halliburton, and then after lunch, we... We were coming back, and one of the guys was like, let's go off this little trail. It's, it's kind of a fun one. Did I mention it's my first day ever on a four-wheeler? So we come on this trail, and it turns out this is a trail I never should have been on. 
Um, and we come to a hill, and this hill went up, and it was rocky, and, and I thought, well, no big deal. A couple of guys went up it, no problem. You know, they sort of stopped. They revved their engine, and then they went up, made their way up through all the rocks and got up top. I thought, oh, I can do this, no problem. And as I'm going up this hill, I realize I can't do this. And, and I ended up tipping the four-wheeler over and went down this little embankment, not a huge embankment, and the four-wheeler, like, lands on top of me, and, and you know, everyone's kind of making sure I'm okay, and then they laugh at me. Um, they cared about me. But Cam, so Cam is a, he's from the fire service, and so he's got a little bit of first aid in him, and um, he noticed I had this massive bruise on my leg already. And so I thought, okay, I mean, he's, he's got some, like, paramedic kind of first aid behind him, and so what's he do? He comes and he pokes my bruise. And I said, why did you do that? He goes, I just like poking bruises. <laughs> well, thanks for that. Um, but it reminds me, like, Jesus is coming and he's teaching counter to what the people are, are living, what they've, been, what they've been told. And it's kind of like Jesus is coming, seeing this bruise, and he's poking at it a little bit, saying, like, this isn't, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And that's the tension, because there's this battle within us. Wait, the battle within us, we want to live like the culture around us. We want to look like the culture around us. On the other hand, it battles with this idea of living a kingdom of God ethic. On the one hand, the one extreme is we want to look like the culture. We want to live like them. We want to act like them. And we can even rationalize it sometimes and say, well, we want them to, to like us and think we're not weird. We might even suggest that's how we have our lifestyle evangelism. Right? So we can rationalize this, no problem. The other extreme is that we live by these kingdom of God, this kingdom of God ethic to this strict adherence. And we're living to the rules of the Old Testament and the rules of the New Testament. And we do this in order to measure up. We need, feel like we need to do this. And what this battle is, is this battle is within us that, the, that we need to live this kingdom of God ethic because we belong to Christ not in order to belong to Christ. We don't live and follow the rules Jesus teaches because we want to belong to him. We can only do it because we do belong to him. I mean, otherwise, all the effort, all that work we do is all in our own power. It's for our own benefit. And when it's for our own benefit, it's only for the here and the now. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, or a good portion of Luke chapter 6 this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn there now. And what's this, is, this is what sometimes is called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. It's sort of that goes along with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. It's a little bit shorter. But one thing we need to understand is where this happens in the, in the context of Jesus' ministry. This is happening at the beginning of his ministry. Um, Jen Wilkin did a little work on the Sermon on the Mount, and she, she writes this about the context of where this happens. She says, it matters that it was preached at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry versus at the end. Seen in its place in the timeline, timeline of Jesus' ministry, we know to read it like an inaugural address. Jesus is telling his followers exactly what they can expect, both to redirect wrong expectations and to shape a positive vision of the kingdom. In other words, she's saying, like, you, you can expect a new understanding of the law based on what Jesus is teaching. But in reality, it's not a new understanding. It's really what it was intended to be in the beginning. Some would say this is kind of like the new Torah, right? Moses came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. 
Jesus has now come down the mountain with his 12 disciples with this new teaching. But again, this isn't all that new. The, this is what was intended by those Ten Commandments in the first place, right? The spirit of the law, not the word of the law. In other words, you have to ask the question, what's the principle behind this expectation? And Jesus is teaching that this life in the kingdom is upside down to what we want to think. Or in reality, are we living upside down and he's saying this is right side up? She goes on to say this, The boldest of modern preachers may place one or two convicting phrases in a sermon. Jesus' preaching is relentless in delineating the difference between citizens of the kingdom of earth and citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We've grown unaccustomed to such directness, to calls to costly commitment, and it can take some time for us to absorb the sense of the sermon as a whole, but with patience and repeated reading, it yields rich fruit. I mean, I think our society, including us today, we don't like direct teaching as much. We don't like to be told sort of in your face, this is what's expected. We actually kind of seem to prefer this soft approach. You know the problem with the softened teaching is, though? Softened teaching is just unclear. It's not as clear as what's expected. And so we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount in Luke today, and we're going we're gonna to, like, fly over it. Like, every partial, of the, every partial verse is like a sermon in itself. And so forgive me, we're not getting super deep in any one of the pieces today of the actual sermon. Maybe we'll come back to that another time. But, but we want to look at what's going on here as Jesus preaches his first big sermon. So Luke chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 17. So Jesus has just uh, gone up the mountain. He's actually sort of called and, and uh, named his 12 apostles, his what I'll, I'll call them sometimes the Big D Disciples, right? Capital D Disciples. And then the crowds that are around him, I call them the lowercase d, lower, uh, small d Disciples. Verse 17 says this, He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. So here we have Jesus, right? He's come down the mountain. He's chosen his 12. He's got his 12 disciples. So there's three groups present for this teaching. His 12 disciples he's just chosen. He's also got a, a crowd of small d disciples, right? A bigger crowd of people who are followers of his, who are already seeing something, wanting to follow him. And there's another multitude of people who are sort of lookers-on, right? They're sort of curious about Jesus, but they're not necessarily his followers. So you've got to ask, your, ask, ask yourself, who's he talking to in this sermon? Well, we're going to find out he's actually talking to groups one and two, right? His 12 disciples and the crowd of disciples. But before this happens, this multitude is already there. And what's happening is they're coming to him with sicknesses and with demons, and Jesus is healing them. He's casting out demons. <coughs> this is one of those cases where he's healing everyone who's there. Oh, we mentioned this a little bit a couple weeks ago where we don't understand why Jesus chooses to heal some and not others. We don't understand that, but the reality is we see that in Scripture. Sometimes he heals everyone. Sometimes he doesn't. But if he 
If we want to choose to live for Jesus, that means we need to choose to live this kingdom of God ethic he's going to teach us here and throughout his ministry. So what does that look like? Well, the first thing is this, living with the kingdom of God ethic goes against how we want to live. I mean, it goes against how we look at the default way for us to live. And he begins his sermon here with what we call the Beatitudes. In verse 20, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when, you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So Luke and Matthew both record the Beatitudes, record this Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew's is a much longer retelling. And Matthew actually has more Beatitudes than Luke does. But Luke also includes these things that we call the woes. It was interesting, last week when Pastor Paul was preaching, I was reminded of something uh, as he was preaching and teaching, we, we mentioned how Jesus was teaching the people. But it didn't tell us what he was teaching. We, we don't know what the content of that teaching was. And yet today we're looking at almost like a whole sermon that he taught. And it reminded me that we don't always remember the content of the sermons we hear. We don't remember all the teachings specifically from people we've, we've grown up with and learned from. But kind of like how you probably don't remember every single meal you were fed growing up, if you didn't have each of those meals, you wouldn't be who you are today. And, and all the collection of all the sermons and teachings you've had throughout your life is what makes you who you are. And so today we understand exactly what he's getting at. And what, we don't know what was compelling him from last week's message, that crowds continue to follow him. But here we have this teaching, and Jesus is telling us what it's like to be in the kingdom of God. And as I said earlier, the kingdom of God is kind of this, this, this entity that Jesus says is here, but doesn't feel like it's here. It's something that we call maybe the now and the not yet, right? The now and the not yet, or uh, the already and the not yet. So the kingdom of God has come in a certain way already. There's some elements of the kingdom that we actually experience ourselves now, but they're the the fulfillment, the consummation of the kingdom of God doesn't happen until Christ returns. And, and, that, and that, that's, when, um, that's when we see the fullness of the kingdom. But for now, this is what Jesus says it looks like to live in the kingdom. Right? He says in verse 20, like, blessed are you who are poor. Right? Yours is the kingdom. He's not blessing poverty as an ethic. He's not saying this is how you need to go live. I mean, Proverbs 30 talks to us about that as well. It says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that's needful for me. Give me the food I need for today, lest I be full and deny you. You know, or say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, if you're rich, you need to go and be poor, because that's going to be better for you. But the reality is that this isn't a blessing of a class over another class at all. 
in essence, we figure the disciples, the, the group of disciples, were actually fairly poor, potentially, which meant they were more reliant on that food. Whereas when you're rich, you will be more self-reliant. You know, Jesus talks later on about how it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. He goes on and talks about the hungry. The hungry will be satisfied. I mean, hungry people have a real practical need. They need food. And he says they will be satisfied. I mean, we'll look ahead in his ministry where he's going to do the feeding of the 5,000. He's going to teach eventually about, you know, do not worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. The weeping are blessed. Now, this isn't a weeping like a, a cherished, held on to grief. You know, some people are like that. You know people like that where they sort of hold on to this grief and it sort of makes them feel better because they have their grief. He's not talking about that. Rather, he's likely talking about people who, who have this weeping, who are seeing the evil around them, who see what's going wrong in the world and they have this desire to, to repair and, and see, uh, see the Lord work. And he goes on to something else here. Blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you, when they revile you. In other words, Jesus is saying it's a blessing to be persecuted. But the key is this, not just persecution in general. You can be persecuted for all kinds of things. But when you're persecuted because of Jesus, that's different. You're not to be pitied. I remember hearing um, or watching a video of an interview with a pastor from China years ago. I mean, the Chinese church has been persecuted for decades. And someone said, we, we're, we're praying for you that you'll have more freedom to meet and to gather. And the Chinese pastor said, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't pray for our freedom. Don't, don't pray for the removal of oppression. Instead, pray for us to have courage to stand in the face of the oppression. See, the Chinese church is not a church of in-name only Christians. And to be a Christian in China means... You need to truly believe and stand for what you believe. I mean, do you want to experience a revitalized love relationship with God? Do you want to see the church re profoundly reinvigorated? Do you want to see the lost become eager for the gospel? I think we all want those things. The reality is that a lot, a lot of times that comes through persecution, not through freedom. And really, in the Bible, there's not a whole lot of prayers for safety. I mean, we do that all the time. We pray for some. We pray for safety on the roads. We pray for safety wherever they go. We don't see a lot of that. We see a lot more of the apostles praying for boldness. Again, to stand in the face of opposition. As Christians, as a church, we shouldn't expect a smooth ride. Jesus says they persecuted the prophets. They persecuted Jesus. They persecuted his apostles. So why wouldn't they per persecute us? And Jesus says, we are blessed if we're persecuted for his sake. He goes on then into some woes. And these woes are very much lined up with the Beatitudes themselves, right? In other words, he's saying these worldly blessings are viewed as undesirable. And the reason is, is because they encourage self-sufficiency, which in reality is fatal to spiritual growth. 
He says, hey, if you're, if you're rich, good job. You have your reward. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be rich and be a true Christ follower. Like, don't get that, un- that understanding because uh, we, we, we all need people to util- use their money for the purposes of God. But the danger is when you have that money, you tend to rely on yourself. And you have to work harder to rely on God. I mean, how many rich and famous people have you heard say that they're just lonely and unhappy? Right? We think that they've got everything that we want, yet that doesn't make them happy at all. Moses taught that to the Israelites even when they were entering into the promised land. You know, when you live in houses you did not build, when you reap from fields you did not plant, he says, don't forget the Lord. He's given you these things. So Jesus would say, if you've got resources, don't forget the Lord. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. I hope Jesus isn't against laughter. I really like laughing. But see, laughter comes when times are good. And when times are good, what do we do? We tend to forget God. And the last woe here is, woe to you when all people speak well of you. This isn't Jesus saying that you should go out and have people dislike you, have people hate you. I mean, the reality is, one of the characteristics of an elder of the church is what? That he's well thought of by outsiders. So there's an element where we need to be well liked by people around us in our culture. But we need to be careful that we aren't well liked because we bend to their will. We need to be well liked but we also need to stand for what we believe to be true. Truth comes over ovation. Jesus is turning their way of life upside down. And I think he's still speaking to us that way now that he's turning our way of life upside down. I mean, at the heart of this whole sermon is this idea of our need for love. And, and there's, English is that one of those languages where is it not not really descriptive with the word love because it means so many different things, right? I love pizza. I love, uh, I love um, sports. I love my wife. But those are all different things. So it's not a storge love, right? That's a storge love is like a natural affection. It's not an eros love, like a romantic love. It's not a, a philia love, like a friendship love, but he's talking about an agape love. A love for the unloving the, you know, an unconditional love because you choose to love someone, not because of what they've done for you. So the second thing about living a kingdom of God ethic is this. It means loving those who don't love you. Loving those who don't love you. Verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Matthew has a little bit more in this, in his telling of the Sermon on the Mount. He has Jesus talking about, you know, you have heard it has been said, but I say to you. He's correcting what they've been taught. You know, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, very much the Old Testament uh, mentality. 
He says, no, but I say to you, love your enemies. You know, do good for your enemies. Not just love them in word, but love them in action. Have their best interest at hand. I mean, that's still very countercultural, is it not? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. I got to tell you this. I, I went to the lacrosse game last night here in town. Toronto Rock and Buffalo Bandits, and I sat down thinking, I'm at a lacrosse game where people are going to get hit a lot. And tomorrow I'm preaching on, turn the other cheek. <laughs> so I, I must confess that this morning. Um, I won't tell you who won, but my team won. And my team's not who you think it is. But Jesus, again, he says this is countercultural. He says, like, put yourself in the shoes of those you're dealing with. What, what would you want done to you if you were them? And he, he offers these examples. Like, if someone slaps you on the face, turn the other cheek. Let them slap the other side also. If someone takes your cloak, give them your tunic. I mean, at the time, they didn't have a closet full of clothes. They probably had one or two of these things. Give. Like, give it away. Don't lend it. Give it. Essentially, Jesus is saying, your honor and your stuff means nothing. It's not worth the fight. In reality, how you respond in these situations may be a more positive response than if you were to fight for it to get it back. Now, he's also not saying just go and be a doormat and, and let people take everything from you. But watch the attitude. Don't hold on to this stuff. In the kingdom, it doesn't matter. I, mean, I remember when growing up, I had a little 12-inch ruler that had the golden rule on it. Anyone else have one of those, right, with the Bible verse? And so Jesus is, is sort of sharing that here, right? Do to others as you'd have them do to you. And it's a good reminder for brothers, it's not a do to others before they do to you, just to be clear about that. Now, the reality is this, this kind of a phrase, this kind of an expectation is, it can be found in pretty much every world religion. In fact, it's written long before Jesus said it. Now, often, most of the time before Jesus said it, it was in sort of the negative con context. In other words, it was like, don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. But see how Jesus turns that into a positive thing? Do to others what you'd have them do to you. In other words, think about what you'd like. Put yourself in their shoes. And, you know, I think about this a lot as a parent. I reflected on that a lot as a parent, thinking back to when I was a child, how I was treated by my parents. And what I kind of, thinking back, how I kind of wished things had been handled. Now, I don't know that I would have handled it any better as a child, but I kind of had that in mind, like, what, what would I have wanted? And, and would I have been able to do that as a father? So Jesus, again, is giving us this upside-down ethic of living in the kingdom. The third item about living with a kingdom ethic, kingdom of God ethic is this. It means living with a higher standard. Living with a higher standard. I was, uh, I was talking to someone this week, and they were telling me about a survey that had been taken amongst a, a group, um, sort of asking them to rate themselves on how they were in different skills. And he said it was funny because the vast majority of people in this survey rated themselves above average at a certain skill. Well, if 75% of the people are above average, what's that mean? They're all average, right? 
But Jesus is sort of saying to us, we need to live with a higher standard. We need to, to attempt to live above average. And the reality is, if you stop and think about it, if, if living the average life is what we all do, living above average doesn't take a whole lot of extra effort. We see what he says here in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. In other words, there's no reward for loving people who love you. Like, that's what we all do. We all live that way. I mean, frankly, I mean, I think it's fair to say, and I, I hope you agree with me on this, but every person, no matter your creed, your race, your gender, your ideology, whatever you want to name it, everybody deserves to be loved and respected. There should be no debating that. I mean, all humanity has been made in the image of God. Even those who reject Him are made in the image of God. You ever stop to think about that? And it says here, and why is that? Well, he says he, He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Like our Father in heaven is merciful to those we disagree with, He's merciful. And shows love to those people who we think are against us. So if he's going to show them love and mercy, why shouldn't we? See, as Christians, we don't get to pick and choose who we love and don't love. Life in the kingdom means living a higher standard. Living with the kingdom of God ethic means dealing with your own failings before the failings of others. Verse 37, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You ever been told that growing up when you point at someone, you've got three fingers pointing back at you, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged, condemn not. We point at someone, try to condemn them. Keep in mind, you've got those fingers pointing back at you. On the one hand, Jesus is saying here, you know, just keep your head down. Mind your business, go about your things. But it's not good for us to live entirely apart from others, so we can't do that. On the other hand, beware of sitting in an ivory tower, pointing out the sins and failings of others. The reality is no one in all of history except Jesus was perfect. Everyone has been a sinner. 
all the great things that have been done throughout history have been done by sinners. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But one of the great outcomes of living in community with other believers in Christ is that another brother or sister might see something in me and point it out. Point out a dangerous habit, maybe a sin I don't even recognize. But here's the thing, don't make it your goal or your mission to point out those sins. Because you start doing that, guess what? People are going to start pointing back at you. Well, you're not perfect either. You've got this sin. So before you approach someone, and and I would encourage you to, to approach people, approach close friends with sin you see in their life, but first, take some intentional time before the Lord. You need to spend some time asking Him to unveil the log that's in your eye. Then and only then can you go in great humility and gentleness, prepared heart, acknowledge your own proclivity to sin, and then share what you see. I think it's important to ask lots of questions. Don't make accusations. I mean, there's times in my life where I I wanted people to point out things in me. Maybe that's the same for you. Maybe there's times you need someone to come alongside and say, ah, I kind of see this in you. You, know, you may want to consider what, that this might be a sin. Deal with your own sins before the sins of others. Jesus says to us, as you start trying to live and working out this in your own life, people will notice it. Living a kingdom of God ethic will be evident to those around you. Verse 43, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. If you're able to live this kingdom of God ethic, first I'd say to you, it's only really through the power of the Spirit that you can do this. But when you're able to live that, people will notice. I remember an older gentleman in our church growing up, and he just had this gentle spirit about him. But he wasn't afraid also to point out things he thought were issues. But he did in such a way that it was just loving and caring. He's such a respected man within our church. It was evident that he was living this kingdom of God ethic. Jesus says, you'll be known by the fruit that you bear. If you're outwardly angry, people will know. If you're outwardly caring and kind, people will know. He says, what's inside you is going to come out when you're pressed. You, you probably all heard that illustration about carrying a cup of liquid, right? You're carrying that cup of liquid. You can do that no problem without spilling it. You could even hand a little bit of, you know, disruption and it won't spill, but if you're knocked into, what's going to happen? All that liquid's going to come out of the cup. So whether you're carrying coffee or water or battery acid, I don't know why you're carrying battery acid in the cup. But what's inside you is going to come out when you get jostled. 
What's going to happen? Who's going to be harmed when that happens? Well, it's going to be those closest to you. Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus teaches us that living this upside-down kingdom ethic is key. On the one hand, he makes it sound like it's no big deal. Yet, from a human perspective, this sounds like a full 180-degree change for us. And it really is. It's nothing we can do on our own, right? Living a kingdom of God ethic is only possible when your life is founded on Jesus. One last little section. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus says, why do you come to me? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I tell you to do? Have you ever asked for advice from an authority and then you didn't follow it? So I've got another friend. We'll call him Jim, because that's his name. <laughs> we were looking at buying a house, um, well, the house we're trying to sell, and, um, and I called him. I said, Jim, should we buy this house? I'd never lived in the country before, by the way. I said, should we buy this house? And Jim says, no, you should not buy that house. So we bought the house. <laughs> and it turns out the well wasn't that great. So I don't know if you ever lived on well water. It's, it's different than in the city. You know? Anyways, it, our well had, yo, had a low um, refresh rate. So we didn't have a lot of water. And then we had a drought one summer. And all of a sudden, our well went dry. But then as it came back, it was very high in sodium. And um, sodium, which I didn't realize, is something you can't fix with a system in the house. In fact, our sodium level was five times uh, what was considered the, the upper range of being aesthetically pleasing. And so we called in another water guy to come, and he said, well, no, you need a new well. And, um, and so we ended up having to spend money to get a new well. We had two well holes drilled, and neither one of them was going to work. We ended up, we have fine water now. The water is great in the house we're trying to sell. It's beautiful water now. We have a new well. Someone else took care of it. It's all good. But all this to say is, why did I call Jim about this house? And why did I ignore him when Jim is not just a water well driller? He's a driller. In fact, he teaches drilling at Fleming College in Lindsay. He understands groundwater. I called an expert, one of my good friends, and I ignored it to my own peril, right? Jesus is saying the same thing. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? They're following him. They're looking to him for, for whatever this teaching is, but they're not, look, they're not listening to him. He says, Jesus says, it's kind of like, like there's these two houses, right? He says, these two houses, they look the same on the surface. Same house but a different foundation. The house looks the same, you know, same doors, same windows, same hanging baskets by the doors. And really, the house that was built on the sand probably came in early 
on the project and even came in under budget probably. You know, the guy finished building it and he's sitting out there in his lawn chair and, and, uh, and enjoying watching the other guy continue to build his house. That house on the rock would have taken longer to, to prepare, to get started, to dig down, to create that foundation. Same house, different foundation. Same stream, different outcome. See, both of those jobs would have done, those, both of those houses would have done their job initially. Even with those little sprinkles of rain, it would have been fine. No big deal. But when that stream burst, it says here, when the storm of life hits, what's going to happen? Well, the house that's on the foundation is going to stand solid. The house that's on the sand is being swept away. It's a sad reality Jesus is talking to some of this, this multitude about. And sadly, as I think about the churches that we have in North America, how many people love coming to church on a Sunday morning? They love singing the songs. They love seeing their friends. Maybe it's good coffee. They even like the teaching. But they're like that house that's on the sand. And when those storms of life hit, they've got no solid foundation. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? It's in the daily submission to Christ. It's in the choosing Christ each and every day that we build that solid foundation. It's the makeup of all those sermons we've not just heard, but have put into action. Right? I, I don't want you to come here on a Sunday just to take in and learn stories. I, I, we hope that you're coming, you're hearing and saying, God, what do, you want, what do I need to do out of this? What do you want me to do with my life because of what I've learned? It's only when we submit to Christ that we can live this kingdom of God ethic. Day in and day out. Choosing Him. Choosing to live like this. Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together. And as we've looked a little bit about choosing Jesus and how that means living in this kingdom of God ethic. We're reminded that it's our opportunity to choose Jesus even this moment. And God, as we sort of uh, move into a time around the Lord's table, as we consider what it means for us that Jesus died on a cross, would you help each of us examine our own hearts? How do we look in this kingdom of God ethic? Where might we need to sort of focus some attention with the help of the Spirit? We're so grateful, Father, that we, we have your Spirit who is there to help us, to walk with us to nudge us, to guide us into living this way that we couldn't do on our own. Oh, for a little while, we can look like we're doing it, but it won't take long and the storms of life will come and next thing you know, we've walked away. Or like that house, we've been swept away. So Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death on the cross 
and for his resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go into a time of communion. This is a time when uh, us, those of us who are followers of Christ take a moment to remember what he's taught us. The Apostle Paul wrote, wrote about what we're going to do. In 1 Corinthians 11, he said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so during this next song, the elders will come and they'll distribute the elements. And then when the song is done, we'll take them together. And I would encourage you in the moments during the song is to, to examine your own heart. Where are you with the Lord? If you are someone who's a follower of Christ, make, make sure you're right with God. And then, then take this. But if you're not someone who might say, no, I'm not, I'm not a follower of Christ yet. I'm not sure yet. I would encourage you, just let it pass you by. It's okay. Let it pass you by. But, but I would say, examine that. Ask someone, what, what is it keeping you from following Christ? What's keeping you from crossing that line of faith? Let's sing together.